G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day Tim, it's good to be back for another discussion. And I feel like chicken tonight. That's an old Australian reference. No, I actually feel like we must be approaching the end of the season because we're just about at the end of our reading in the second chapter of Genesis. Yeah, that's right, Chris. We're getting very close to the end of chapter two. And this week, I think we'll read the last of our text, but we still have a bit of work to do before we can leave chapter two behind. And of course, some more interesting stuff to come up before we get to the end of this season of the podcast. So let's get stuck into it like a good chicken cacciatore. We're going to talk about the last couple of verses of Genesis chapter two. I'll just read them before we get into the discussion and then we can talk about it. So this is Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Okay, so as I said just now, we've come to the end of the text for Genesis chapter 2, and I will be reminding you in due course, as I have before, that the chapter divisions and the verses are just artificial constructs that were added long after the fact for reference purposes, and they have no bearing on the story other than to distract us from it. Even so, it should be fairly clear that as we reach the end of verse 25, we are in fact concluding the previous paragraph before moving into a new development in the biblical story. So before we get to Genesis 3, we need to take a careful look at these final statements concerning the man and his wife in the paradise of Eden. But we can't just approach this on a granular level, though. This is an explanatory text, and if we're going to understand it as an explanation... We need to go back and read what it is supposed to be explaining for us. Yeah, I kind of get the feeling when I read this text that the author seems to think that he's explaining something, but I'm not sure that we necessarily understand what he seems to think he's explaining. It's kind of lost on us, isn't it? It kind of feels like we're supposed to know what's going on, but, well, let's be honest, we probably don't. Yeah, so we'll zoom out a bit and read the second half of chapter 2, and then we'll try and understand it. I'm going to read from verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature... That was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, I had a lot of trouble with this passage in verse 24, where it says a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, because in ancient Israelite custom, it's the woman who leaves her father's house to go and live with her husband. And typically, they would stay under his father's roof. So the man doesn't leave his father and mother, but she leaves hers? Yeah, and I thought, well, how can a culture so devoted to the study of Torah not understand that they've been doing it wrong this whole time? Haven't they read Genesis? But 
rather than go back to my fundamentalist roots and just make up an imaginary history that conforms with my understanding of the scripture, I thought that perhaps my understanding was incorrect and that I should seek a more accurate reading of the text that would make sense of the information we have. And I think the keys to this passage lie in the understanding of the terms translated here as leave and bond. In Hebrew, they are azab and dabak. They are very common words. Azab is to forsake or abandon or to go away from somewhere, and dabak means to stick together like glue. But these words can be used to take on even stronger meanings, and we're talking about things like, on the one hand, apostasy, and on the other hand, faithfulness and loyalty. These are central biblical themes here. These are the terms by which our faithfulness or otherwise toward God will be judged. So to see these terms expressed between a man and a woman is a very serious matter. Now we all know about what Jesus had to say about marriage and divorce. Uh, this is Matthew chapter 19 from verse 3. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Right, we'll leave it there. Now, this is a special passage from Jesus because he doesn't often quote from the early chapters of Genesis. And here he refers to both Genesis 1 and 2 in order to make his point. And the point is that when your standard becomes corrupt because of your own corruption that you are unwilling to confront, you cannot achieve the ideal. And then you're stuck because you can't go back before the corruption and before the tragic loss in order to try and achieve that ideal. The ideal's gone, and now you just have to manage the damage. And so it is with marriage itself. At each step of the way, you need to make sure that you're getting it right. And where you don't get it right, you need to immediately go back and sort things out according to the Word of God. Corruption sets in over time, and I'm not necessarily talking about cheating or neglect or any particular one of a multitude of possible sins. The longer you leave it, the worse it gets, and the harder it is to fix, if you can fix it at all. 17 years I've been married to my wife. I'm still learning these lessons. So uh, don't come to me for your marriage advice. That's what Scripture's for. All I can say is you need to love your partner more than you love yourself and more than you love the idea of your relationship. Right, you got to keep these uh, short accounts, as they say. But uh, we, we're getting off track here because what we need to be focused on is these terms which speak about faithfulness on the one hand or unfaithfulness on the other and how they relate to the man and his wife functionally. Remember that in the broader context of this passage, the man has a job to do. The man has been placed in charge of continuing God's work and bringing order to the world around him. And when God saw that it was too much for him and that it was not good for him to be alone, God showed the man in a dream that the woman was made to be his other half, to be his corresponding helper, to be his equal and opposite side and his ally in partnership with him. 
So this desertion of his father's house is saying that the man needs to recognise that as long as he remains under his father's roof and is waited on hand and foot by his mother, he will not grow into the man who is capable of doing the work that God has set before him. He is a child. He needs to mature. He needs to recognise that as long as he is borrowing dad's keys and eating his mum's cooking, that he is not doing the work he was supposed to do. And functionally speaking, that means that he's not a man at all. So he must forsake his comfortable place in his father's house. Go and fight his other half, who will complete him and make him effective and functional again so that he can get on with the work. And again, that's not a critique of single people. Uh, this is talking about getting out and being effective as a representative of Christ and doing that in an optimal way. But the man must remain faithful and loyal to his wife because only when they're bonded together like glue are they capable of functioning as one whole person rather than two distinct halves. Remember that in Genesis 1, God gave them both the same work to do, and Genesis 2, God showed the man that he was incomplete and incapable of function without his other half. So this is about making humankind functional by maintaining right relationships and balance between them. And we should recognise at this point that the text is not speaking of gender differences here and making an example of men for the amusement of women, the woman is also non-functional without her partner. She wasn't even included in the story until it was demonstrated that there was a need for her to exist. Neither one can work without the other, and as we've already seen, neither one is greater than the other. And that's what makes the Bible so special in comparison to other ancient texts with regard to the way that women are supposed to be viewed and treated in society. In other ancient Near Eastern cultures, women were regarded as lesser than men in uh, pretty much every respect. So the Bible says that God created all kinds of animals, obviously. So how come we don't get a story similar to this one that tells us that male and female animals belong together? Well, I think there's something unique to humankind that requires that we get specific guidance on this otherwise self-explanatory principle. Both male and female are shown to have the same task, the same purpose, to represent God in the world. And our God, as we've already seen, likes to do things in partnership with others. This isn't about sex. This is about cooperation. We see this in creation when God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. We see it again in the judgment at the Tower of Babel when he says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. In 1 Kings 22, um, from verse 19, then Micaiah said, therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and the whole heavenly army was standing by him at his right hand and at his left hand. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to march up and fall at Rimoth Gilead? So one was saying this and another was saying that. Then a spirit came forward and stood in the Lord's presence and said, I will entice him. And so it goes on. That's just a few examples of when God deliberates among his divine counsel and allows the lesser gods to participate in enacting his will. Consider also the extension of the work of creation that was given to the man in the Garden of Eden, to do as God's representative. God loves to work in partnership with others and he expects us to do the same. So we've talked a lot now about functionality and about why it was necessary for the man to find a wife and be joined to her and faithful to her. But we haven't talked about the last verse in our reading yet. Yeah, and this nakedness of the man and the woman, why mention it in the first place? And why is the concept of shame introduced it's quite interesting yeah well i think the first thing to realize which is going to be important later is that there are other particular hebrew words that can be used to convey the idea of nakedness so this one in particular forms part of a word play that we're going to study later on but whichever word is used it doesn't have any bearing on how the word functions in this text we just need to understand that these people were not wearing anything and why is that important enough to bear mentioning well 
if it didn't matter that they were naked, then the author could have done without telling us that. And we would have been none the wiser. In fact, we might have considered these individuals to be perhaps more worthy of respect if we thought that they were intelligent enough to have their own clothes. But this isn't about intelligence at all. It's about the necessity and function of clothing. This is actually kind of related to what we were saying in an earlier episode about the power of names. If you have a garment that covers you, then you have the power to conceal yourself. But if you are naked, then you have no power over your body and you cannot prevent its exposure before all and sundry. In ancient Near Eastern culture, it was important to have clothing for that reason, just like it was important that people in power kept their true name secret. You don't want to expose yourself in a way that gives other people power over you. But in this situation in Eden, there is no need of clothing because there's no threat to the nakedness of this couple. So just like we had the, the man and the woman unnamed initially in this story, they also go without clothes because neither one has power over the other and neither one, I guess, has anything to fear. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this accounts for the absence of shame in this situation. Shame in ancient Near Eastern culture is used as a tool to promote conformity within the community and to bring about correction to the individual who steps out of line. Where there's no transgression, there's no shame, and nobody's done anything wrong here or behaved inappropriately, the fact that neither one of these two individuals is ashamed shows that they're on equal footing. Neither one is ashamed before the other, and neither is ashamed in the presence of God, in the place where he holds court. Now, I mentioned earlier that clothing was representative of power, and we find that clothing is in itself a strong motif found in biblical literature that's used to convey a person's attributes. This is something that I mentioned in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, in a discussion of the Apostle Paul's use of clothing as a metaphor for glorification. Paul talks about putting off the old man and putting on the attributes of God. In the book, I talk about how this kind of language traces all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia and stories like the myth of Adapa. In that tradition, Adapa is a man who is sometimes depicted as the first man like Adam, but sometimes also depicted as the seventh man like Enoch. Adapa gets summoned to the abode of the gods. He gets warned beforehand by a crafty lesser god that he should not put on any clothes that are offered to him, although he's free to eat and drink whatever he's given. During his audience with the high gods, he remembers his instructions and dutifully rejects the offer of clothing. It's only after this encounter that he learns that had he accepted the clothing, he would have become a divine being, and instead, what he got was the wisdom that came from eating the food, although he remains a mortal who will eventually die. It's a fascinating story, and it sounds kind of familiar. You should be able to see the parallels here with the Garden of Eden story. The guy goes to the place where the gods are and has a chance to become a divine being, gets tricked out of it by a supernatural bad guy and loses his chance at immortality in preference to gaining knowledge. Yeah, I thought it sounded pretty familiar. So does that mean that there is some kind of connection between this ancient story from Mesopotamia and the one we read in the Bible? Well, there is certainly a polemic element to the biblical story because undoubtedly the author was familiar with the Mesopotamian context in which he found himself and the stories that come from that culture. And he's setting the record straight. That doesn't mean that the author's correcting the details of the story and saying, no, the first man was not a fisherman in the marshes of Babylon. He was a gardener in a place called Eden. I, you know, that's, that's not what's going on here. The purpose of polemic literature is to correct the overarching narrative, the big picture, the one that applies to all of us, the story that tells us why things are the way that they are. But the key element here is the clothing which would have given him the power to become divine. In Genesis, the man and the woman have no clothing. 
and yet they stand in the presence of God and his counsel without shame, and they can do this because they are in the place where God put them, doing the thing that God wants them to do. Once again, where there is no transgression, there is no shame. The man and the woman are not divine beings. They are mortals, but in the presence of the divine, they feel no shame because all of them together form part of God's family, both earthly and divine. And to paraphrase Paul again, there are different kinds of bodies and different kinds of glory. All were created to give glory to God by representing him well. Okay, well, I think that's enough for this episode. We're going to leave it there. We'll continue with our final thoughts for the season later on. So we haven't had a giant warfare segment for ages, Tim. What are we going to look at right now? Well, I thought that since we touched on the idea of clothing just now, we'd want to have a look at some of the clothing that protects us from evil. Now, I say that and some of you might be rolling your eyes and going, oh, here we go again, Ephesians 6 and the armour of God, heard it all before. Well, that'll be too obvious. And let's face it, for most of our listeners, you've probably read that a million times and it's fairly straightforward, but... There's a lot of special language around clothing in the New Testament that we probably haven't thought much about, which will make a huge difference when it comes to representing God well and confronting evil in our lives and in the world around us. Some of this is going to be stuff that I mentioned in the book, Answers to Giant Questions, but there will be some other stuff here that you might find interesting as well. There's a lot more in Scripture than what I have time for here. So if you're looking for something to do this week, maybe search your New Testament for the language of clothing, putting on this or that, being dressed, putting off bad things, etc. I'm going to start with this passage at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we looked at recently, but we didn't go as far as to examine the clothing motif that is here in the text. And I want you to pay attention to how Paul uses this in connection with the first man, Adam. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being, The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, 
always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul is talking about glorification here. He's talking about a concept that theologians call theosis. And specifically, he's talking about the final outcome of that process. We do our best to be godly on this earth, and we try to live in a manner worthy of Christ. But ultimately, our works will fall a long way short of living up to what Jesus has done for us. So our process of becoming Christ-like pales in comparison with the transformation that occurs after our mortal bodies pass away, and we are imbued with glory from on high. Notice here the connection between the first man and the clothing of immortality that we were talking about a moment ago when I mentioned the Adapa myth from Mesopotamia. What the first man failed to achieve in that tradition is exactly what we are destined to receive in Christ. And it's not just looking shiny or getting wings or being sparkly or something. It's everlasting life. It's immortality. And it's combined with incorruptibility, which is something that the first man of Genesis 2 didn't have. So that's not just something nice to think about for the future. It's the word of God, a promise that we can hold on to, something that we can remember in times of discouragement. Knowing your destiny in Christ is powerful, but you need to remember that there's a time stamp on that glorious transformation. You're not living your best life now. This is talking about your future. And you can't borrow against your future to guarantee your victory now. You might be thinking, what are you talking about? How can anyone do that? You know what? What are you talking about? And how could anyone do that? So let me explain. Elsewhere, Paul infers that we as glorified future saints in Christ will be in a position to judge angels, right? That's 1 Corinthians 6 verse 3. But there's a catch. Again, that's in the future. And right now, we're bogged down with the concerns of everyday life like the Corinthians, aren't we? We, we need to lift up our eyes. We need to aim higher. If we're going to grow toward this glorious destiny, we need to start acting like we're already in it. And that's without assuming that we've already arrived in it. What am I getting at here? We're talking spiritual warfare. We're talking about those moments when you're confronted by supernatural evil. We're talking about situations where you are hopelessly outranked by an entity that has powers that you can't imagine. And did you really think that you could pull rank and act like you're a glorified saint with the powers of a god because Paul says we'll get there later? Or to put it bluntly, if you try that, you're going to get smashed. All this talk about glorification is given as an encouragement and as something to hope for, but there's no way that we can borrow on that guarantee for the future to give us some kind of authority to pull rank in this life. Let's not forget that it's the faithful in Christ, those allegiant to him, who receive this glorification, and we get it only because of him. Don't forget the words of the revelation. It is only he who is faithful to the end who receives this glory. Everything that we have comes from Christ. So if we are looking for authority in a confrontational situation against powers and principalities and whatever might stand up against us, the only authority that we can appeal to is Christ. Now, I'm not talking about invoking the name of Christ here because even that isn't a necessary guarantee. What? 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 I thought invoking the name of Jesus fixes everything. Well, that's a common idea, and it does work, but there are conditions. I'm saying that because if you haven't got your heart right, and you're not in alignment with the Spirit of Christ, and you make yourself out to be a hypocrite in front of your enemy. Look at what Paul says here in Romans 13. This is from verse 11. Besides this, 
since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is near, so let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us walk with decency, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarrelling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. So now Paul is talking about the armour of light, which sounds cool, but what does that mean? Well, I suppose you guessed by now that it's going to work together with the statement that he makes afterward, which is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So this armour of light stuff, what is that? Well, Paul's been talking about day and night. He's been referring to good behaviour and bad behaviour. He's talking about light and darkness. At night, people do bad things because they're confident that they won't be seen. But in the daytime, you have to act with propriety and you have to be good because people can see you. This isn't even about whether God can see you. This is about what others see. And the armour of light isn't some kind of military apparel. Light is what makes you visible to others. If you're wearing light, you can't hide your deeds. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5:14? You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So if you're literally clothed in light, it means that you have to act as though you are always on public display. You can't hide anywhere to do the wrong thing. You need to remember that you represent God and you are visible 24-7. And you might be thinking now, how is that any help in spiritual warfare? You know what? I want to tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, how is that any help in spiritual warfare? I'm just being honest. We need to remember the nature of our enemy. He is the accuser. In Hebrew, that's what Satan means. Satan. Uh, so he's going to bring before God anything that he can use against you. So your best defense is firstly to be above reproach, which means doing right in the sight of all. And that's where the light comes in. But what about this other thing that Paul says about putting on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you know that you can't be perfect all the time, but you have an advocate in Christ and he can. So you put on Christ by maintaining allegiance to him and remaining in communion with his spirit, and that covers you from the attacks of the devil, not because the devil is attacking you directly, but because he's appealing to God against you as the accuser that he is in the hopes that God will see your sins and imperfections and hand you over to the devil for chastisement. That's what he's aiming at. He's always trying to play God off the humans by trying to get God mad at them. But if you have the spirit of Christ and are living in obedient, faithful allegiance to him, then the Father looks at you and sees only the righteousness of Christ, and the devil, the accuser, has to flee because he's got nothing. To wrap this up, we do have a glorious future destiny in Christ, which includes being dressed in immortality and incorruptibility. But we need to remember that we can't claim on that now. While we're alive in our mortality, we are instructed to live lives of accountability before everyone, keeping nothing hidden so that there are no grounds for accusation against us. But being good is not enough. We need to put on Christ by remaining faithful and allegiant to him so that his spirit covers us before God with the righteousness of Christ. And that is how we're going to achieve that glorious destiny and defeat the works of the devil against us in this life. All right, well, we'd better wrap it up there. and We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant 
questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. They were naked and God made them underpants. So I just thought I'd get it into the spirit of things. Oh boy. We got some to do. <laughs> Honey, where are my pants? Let's, let's rip it off like a band aid. One motion, right off. Giant warfare. Or giant warfare. Let's, let's do that. Warfare. Again. Warfare. We should do that together. It's okay. time for... Ready? <laughs> Three, two, one. It's time for... It's time for... Giant... Giant... Yeah. Close enough. That was awful. <laughs> and we're the hosts host of the of Answers, the answers <laughs> to Giant <laughs> Questions podcast. You got slower than me or what? <laughs> I, see, I knew it would work. You've got too much faith. That's always been your problem. Oh, I'm a man on, of reason and rationale. Let's try it again. Okay. And we're, yeah, the, we're hosts the hosts of the Answers, of the answers to Giant <laughs> Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions. About and we don't like giants. talking at the same time, so don't even ask. So there you go. Geek time over. <laughs> Let uh, your geek mate, time begin. I'm, on this podcast, geek time is never over. <laughs> it might be oh, a slogan for season that's, three. I was going to say, that's a good... Uh... Everybody wants to be naked and famous. Everybody want to be just like me. I'm naked and famous.